Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such Good Feeling. My guest today is living proof of how change can be transformative. Already a successful producer, writer, musician, she decided to pursue her dream of being an in-demand film, TV, and now game composer by packing up a London studio and moving to LA three years ago, a move that has paid dividends with huge success. In the old days, we would meet in Chiswick for a coffee every week, but now it's early morning for me and late night for the extraordinarily talented Sarah DeCourcy. Hi. Hey, Steve. How are you? You see, I told you the intro was worth it. It was really good. Thanks. <laughs> was that about me? That was amazing. It, I know. You. It wasn't It wasn't so bad. It took me a few and goes, but, uh, but so interestingly <laughs> for three. two producers, just before we started recording, the conversation was very much about <laughs> microphone selection. And um, Sarah was just informing <laughs> me was. that the microphone she has chosen is a microphone that she recorded a number one song on. Well, it's a classic SM57, <laughs> which I just quickly removed from a snare drum in the studio. But um, it works. It's a classic. does a job. I agree. And of course, you are a singer and multi-instrumentalist and producer and classically trained musician and synth and gear nerd. Yeah, all of those things. All of those things. <clears throat> well, I'm going to say loosely on the singer thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I do love to use my vocals um, when I can, creating, you know, if it's background building up, you know, wordless vocals or, you know, singing a top line for a DJ or um, just creating some pads or beds. Yeah, I love to use my voice for that. Um, and then, yeah, I do like to make funny noises with electronic boxes and goodies. <laughs> you really do. Yeah, I really what's, do. Um, what's your earliest memory of music when you were growing up? What, what's, a, what's a memory you can think of where you remember hearing something or being intrigued by music? Oh, I'm going to say I was playing instruments from the age of three, but I think the moment where I connected when I heard a piece of music for the first time and just immediately a spark went off, you know, a light went off where I knew I wanted to write or I wanted to play this or just that connection was probably when I heard Kate Bush, um, the album, The Whole Story, somebody was playing it and I was just like, what is this? And I think it was cloud busting, you know, the one with the string. So I was, you know, picked up my violin. I was like, I want to play this, this violin melody. I want to play these strings and this incredible Kate Bush is singing. You know, it was just everything about it. I just completely connected with it and it took me away. Um, and I then you know, it was exploring that album, then went back to her earlier albums like The Dreaming and all of this programming drums and chanting in the background. And I think really for me, um, Kate Bush as an artist definitely lit the fire. Um, and also classical composers at the time, I think Rachmaninoff, when I first discovered his music, um, it set my brain and my heart on fire, I think, as a musician. And I, I, um, yeah, so those two very different, but <laughs> yeah. Just to go back to what you just said there, what instruments were you playing at three? <laughs> well, you know, everyone picks up the recorder. <laughs> oh, so no, that was the first the annoying, noisy instrument. <laughs> 
Yep, it was the recorder. I'd, honestly, I don't think it was my fault. I think they just hand you the recorder when you're a kid. I, I swear they that did. that's what happens. So, mm. um, But then I shortly after sat down at the piano and was very intrigued by that and then you couldn't drag me off the stool. It was just like every day, all day, wanted to play. Um, then... Um, yeah, I was, it was my after school straight at the piano. No one really had to force me to do it. It was just like, I want to be here. So the connection with that instrument is deep, long, love, affair, <laughs> forever. Um, and I picked up the violin at probably, probably around six years old. Um, and also loved that in a way that I can manipulate melody and sound very differently you know you can do that very differently on a violin to a piano um so I loved both those instruments and yeah I continued to play those through my younger years yeah. and piano and violin were you being were you having lessons yeah I <clears throat> I went into lessons when I was around five or six I think um in a serious way I think the teacher was like oh she you know she's very talented she's very committed she obviously loves doing it as well. So let's take this seriously and have regular lessons and do it properly. Um, you know, technique, learning it properly from scratch um, and doing the it kind of the classical way, which was which I'm very grateful for because it built an amazing foundation for me on piano especially. Um, <clears throat> and the same with violin. And then the talents were kind of recognized by my teacher and she recommended that I go to a school called Cheatham School of Music in Manchester and I went there when I was 10 I think uh, 9 or 10 I think 10 um, and I was there throughout till I was 18 and I studied classical piano and classical violin and composition later on um, when I was around 14 wanted to write my own music as well as play other people's I think that started around then so so a lot of that hinting to the sort of famed word sort of child prodigy. Um, but at the same point, uh, you were also, as you said, you know, things like Kate Bush. I mean, what's your, aside from when you're working on the classical side of things and your musicianship, you know, in your teenage years, there's obviously also a love of, of other music, including, you know, pop or rock. So give me an example of the kind of people you were listening to when you were a sort of teenager. Oh, I mean, I was always listening to classical. Obviously, I was surrounded by it. And then you're probably going to mix that in with um, <laughs> probably things like Guns N' Roses <laughs> and the Rolling Stones and, you know, Jamiroquai was a thing. Daft Punk was a thing. Um, I'm going to say I listened to quite a lot of Van Morrison, um, Patti Smith... It was a real mix-up of music, actually. Um, obviously, Michael Jackson, a lot of Michael Jackson, <laughs> um, and Madonna, just from a just power female perspective. I thought she was amazing. You know, as a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, she was incredible. Was there a point as you were kind of growing up and doing this, was there in your head, did you ever have a plan to think I would like to be a concert pianist? Well, actually, that was kind of the plan from the age of probably around eight. I I was 
Yeah, I was thinking to myself, I, I want to go around the world and play classical music and be a concert pianist. That was kind of my plan for a really long time. I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I was lucky enough to do a uh, a lot of music competitions and be a part of a lot of concerts and performances up North England, like around Manchester, um, and did a performance at the Royal Northern College of Music when I was 11 years old doing a piano concerto. Um, I was so nervous. I had to do it with the music, even though I knew it. I was <laughs> I'd like a page turn and kneeled down next to me and could barely touch the pedals. But it was um, it was amazing that I got to do that. And I think from that moment, I was like, yes, this is, this is what I want to do. And I continued those competitions, um, even traveling to Europe. Like I went to Italy and did a big piano competition in Italy. Um, uh, probably till I was around 15, I did a lot of those um, kinds of activities as a concert pianist. It's, it's a lot of competitions really when you're that age. And then you kind of get known in the community and go out and do concerts and I'd probably do a concert a week, you know, like lunchtime concerts in colleges or concerts in the evening and just like constantly learning new repertoire and just getting used to being in front of audiences, which was amazing, which gets rid of the, the nerves, although I still totally get nervous. But, you know, <laughs> doing it when you're younger, you can kind of not be so scared. Um, so that was great training for that. And yeah, I just... I. I loved it. I loved getting up there. Just went into my whole little world, and um, yeah, it was it was definitely an experience as a as a kid to run around and do all that. <laughs> Not normal. <laughs> and I guess all of this stuff is helpful when it comes to the next move to the Royal Academy. Yeah, um, it's funny though because um, I was kind of torn when I went to the Royal Academy because. Uh, around age 14, I discovered electronic music. <laughs> and um, with my composition um, moving forward at that point, because I was entering composing competitions as well as piano competitions. So I was composing string quartet music and winning competitions. Um, and then I was like, I want to record it myself. I want to learn how to record string quartet. That got me really interested in studio work. And then... I met someone who used to come in once a week at Cheatham School of Music. He wasn't really in demand for teaching because it wasn't a thing. It was a very classical-driven school. Um, and I met with him. I can't remember his name, but he <clears throat> he was amazing. He was like, oh, you, you want to learn how to record this string quartet piece I'd composed? I was like, yeah, I want to learn, like, how are we capturing this? And he was like, step away from the Mac. We are going to learn two-inch tape. We're going to learn it through a desk. You're going to learn from, you know, old school methods. Um, I was kind of frustrated because I'd see everyone sitting at Max, you know, recording music. And I just, I want to, but, um, but I'm now very grateful for that because I understand, I think, a lot. Um, and um, so when it came about to what I'm going to do next after Cheatham School of Music, I didn't want to just go as a composer or just go as a classical pianist. So when I went to audition uh, to get in, well, I was recommended, um, I was offered a bursary. So um, I was recommended that they see me and that it was 
kind of a guarantee I was going to get a place there because they'd heard about me. So that was amazing. Obviously, very grateful for that. And I told them that I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a classical pianist or a composer at this point, and I didn't want to narrow down my options um, by just choosing one course. And so they were like, oh, no, you have to choose one course. And so I was like, okay. So I chose classical piano, and then I sought out the one of the main teachers, professors there who does the film scoring course, the composition course. It's kind of film and composing and everything mixed together. And I just said, can I go to the classes? I know I'm not here as, you know, as a composer on a course, but can I just come to your classes and sit at the back anyway? And he was like, sure. Um, so I kind of did that. So I did it. <laughs> I was officially there as a classical pianist and unofficially I was going to all the composer. So I did, I did all the exams, the composer exams, like he like scored them for me and every, like he he marked them for me um I did all the concerts and um, composed music for the concerts that they put on um I just just wasn't official but um yeah so I was kind of torn between the two and found a sneaky way to get the best out of both worlds <laughs> but also that takes guts and temerity to sort of want to do a do more work than is required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and <laughs> um, I had three jobs. Yeah, like real jobs, like rubbish jobs. <laughs> playing student or, jobs. No, oh, no, no, no. Like oh, right. Marriott Hotel, six a.m. cleaning sheets and serving food and working in pool bars yeah. at one a.m. and serving yeah. beer and yeah, I was doing all that as well. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's. Um, I think it's important to say that actually, I was um, recently at a. Uh, a production futures event and I was saying a very we were all saying a very similar thing that I mean if the passion is to just do music um you just find a way around it no matter what it takes I think that's I think that's correct actually in the way that I think that's how I felt when I was headed to the Royal Academy I think I'd gone down so many different musical routes in my teen years of classical pianist, then composer, then discovering, um, you know, recording music, producing music, uh, you know. And I think I, there's just so many ways I could express myself as a musician that I didn't want to then go to the Royal Academy and just go and sh just make it small again. I was like, surely now it should be getting even bigger. And so, yeah, they, I mean, I don't think they liked me very much. <laughs> I think they were a bit annoyed. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> in fact, I know they were a bit annoyed. They told me they were a bit annoyed. <laughs> but um, yeah, many, many a visit to the office saying, Sarah, you can't go to the classes. You're not allowed to go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I just didn't want to narrow those options um, for myself as a musician. Um in fact, I remember for about three months I went to the musical theatre courses, <laughs> classes, just because everyone was like, oh, it's amazing. And so I'd just like go to those classes. I had jazz. I think I went for a few months to a couple of the jazz classes. I wasn't even on that course. I was like, it's all happening in this building. And it's not like they're going to like college arrest me or something. <laughs> so I just turn up to all sorts of things. And um, yeah, it was, I feel like that's what I was there for. It was the whole point. Yeah. So coming out of there, 
you know, you've learned as much as you can. I mean, there's always more to learn and we all still learn every single day. What's, what's your plan coming out of there? What's, what does Sarah do next? Well, Sarah was on like panic mode, which is classic exiting of college and going, nothing's happening. Um, so Sarah had like 95 jobs that weren't music. No, I, I had a, still had a lot of jobs. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit panicky because I don't know, you think you're going to come out and go, all right, I'm doing this and then you're not. And you're like, how do I do that? And um, so I suppose I was doing a lot of jamming. I was doing a lot of, you know, sight reading for film scores, which was great to kind of get into that world. So just turning up and sight reading for recordings um, at the St. Martins um, and playing in hotels, playing piano in hotels. Um, which is a, a sort of thankless task a bit, but I suppose, again, you're playing, so you're fine. Yeah, at least it's music, yeah. But, you know, I'm very grateful for that because it paid well. And obviously the fact that I can play and I'm lucky that I can go do a job and do play piano. But kind of after a while, I'm going to say that it worked against me a little bit because the whole point was I'd be doing these jobs and then when I get home, I'd be composing and building up my repertoire. And it got to the point where I was playing like five hours of piano in a hotel and like the last thing I wanted to do when I got back was like play more piano. It, it kind of just it's you know what I mean yes it was starting to wear me out and I wasn't enjoying it as much so I had to like bite the bullet and quit that and get a job at a hotel that wasn't music just so that then I could come back to the music I know that probably sounds a bit strange but it definitely helped when I did that and did home include the beginnings of some sort of technology so that you could continue your education on, you know, electronics and production and, you know, sequences, etc. Yeah, I was building up a little, um, a little selection of, you know, sin. Or like I think I was just on eBay. <laughs> Someone was selling something for like fifty quid, and I was like, I'll have that. Don't know what it does, but I'll have it. Um, I just had terrible mics, terrible synths, terrible everything. I didn't know what I was doing. Cubase, Pro Tools, ugh, all over the place. What was your first synth? Um, I still have it. It's like right next to me. <laughs> it's the Korg Triton LE. I won't let it go. Everyone's like, Why do you still have this? I'm like. Because it was my first synth. It cost me a fortune. Um, yeah, and I still have it and I still use it. I literally used it a couple of months ago in a score. I love it. It's a classic. Um, Korg, Ellie, uh, it's running Pro Tools. I actually had a mini disc four track recorder, which I still have, which blows my mind. It was like you have to, as soon as you do like, four tracks you have to print the other three onto the one and then you've got another three spare and it's all this commitment of audio and it's very stressful um but it's kind of um kind of forces you to commit which these days with midi and everything you know so it was interesting to think how much i did back then on on what i had um i loved my little setup it was simple inspiring i think i had an acoustic guitar Oh, I had a Rhodes as well. Yeah, I had a Rhodes. And yeah, that that was pretty much it. And I'd just make what I could, make noises. Very, I think I just had an SE mic, something very simple. 
and just was writing classical songs, piano instrumentals, just anything, just keeping on going and just building, just be, trying to become better and better and better and learn what it was exactly I wanted to do as a composer and a musician, yeah. So what was the thing that kind of the step that you took to kind of begin your path on a slightly more commercial, in, in a slightly more commercial world? Was it something with bands? Was it a, a break like that? I mean, how do you get out of the hotels and the kind of bedroom composing into something that's big, the beginning of your professional career? I think that was like me, weirdly. That's probably not the answer you're expecting, but... I was touring with all these bands and I was like, I, you know, I want to be, I really want to get more involved in the writing and the producing. And I was still composing music, um, but I knew that, you know, scoring for film was, I was going to have to spend many years, you know, keeping that going. So I was really enjoying writing and playing gigs and this kind of, all these different genres of music. Um, I was like, oh, I want, you know, I want people to take me seriously and I really want to learn. And so actually, um, it was, I just went and got a loan from my bank and just decided to have a studio. <laughs> I had no, I had nothing to put in it, like nothing. I had like a desk. I had like nothing to put in it. It was hilarious. But I just felt like if I did that, I would take myself seriously. And then maybe that would give like, not like give me the nudge because I was doing it anyway, but I don't I don't know. It's that that whole thing of like just giving me that environment of like this is this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing, and I'm committing to it, and I'm gonna learn as much as I can and collaborate as much as I can and have people over and we can jam. And so I I think that was that was the moment where it got serious was I just like created the let's get serious, let's do it properly. <laughs> yeah I want to have a career out of this I want this to be my only job I don't want to be working at these hotels anymore I don't want to be doing this and the only way for me to do that is to kind of bet on me and um yeah borrow some money and build a studio <laughs> yeah which is again this sort of comes up quite a lot in your story but I mean again it's you know one of those things where you're you're trying to to push yourself forward and actually borrow money that you don't have. But it's in, there have been quite a few times in your life, I think, where you have invested financially and emotionally in yourself and thought, you know, I mean, our um, mutual friend, James Wiltshire, has quite mm, a lovely, um, has, oh, has, love has, if anyone... Um, is it wishes to f9 audio is is james's company that does amazing samples and he also has incredible tutorials and he really cares about that and he recently did a thing which was like five hints or tips or some of the five things you need to know and one of them i really um enjoyed was uh just simply the cavalry isn't coming yeah so <laughs> yeah and and that was so true <laughs> i mean no no but that was true you you just thought well and it doesn't mean to say that there's been, been a lot of people that have been instrumental of kind of, you know, helping and inspiring you. But actually what it came down to was I need to be, I need a studio, I need a creative space. And I have a belief that at some point I will create things in it, which will then lead to the next path. Yeah. I mean, really, you just got to bet on yourself and just get on with it. 
yeah, no one was going to come to me and go, oh, do you want to make a record? <laughs> it's like, that's not going to happen. I mean, why would they? Unless you're, you know, you've made 50, so it's chicken and egg. It's like, all right, well, you have to, you you got to start somewhere. So you have to start with you and just say, I want to make music. I want to make this music and this music. Oh, however different, however many different styles of music you want to make. But um, it's almost like just, just bet bet on yourself and just go do it best you can. And yeah, I had to borrow money and I still had to work the crappy jobs. But um, that, I mean, things, the moment I got that space within eight months, everything changed for me. Yeah, like everything changed for me. And those eight months were <laughs> really difficult, like to justify this space that I had. I was like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Um, but I basically lived in it. As, as you know <laughs> oh, yeah. very well. Uh, yeah, I basically spent like 14 hours a day in this space and made it made it work. Um, you know, and over that time met some amazing people and um, just built a community in that building with other studios. And yeah, I'm just, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not going to come knocking for me to make film music and make records. It's just, I just had to get in there and just make some and then go show people what I'm doing. And what was the first thing that happened after all of that that kind of started to pay back? What was the thing after all of that investment where something happened where you thought, oh, thank God, it's all been worth it? Kylie Minogue. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was the one, and that just came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, that was, that changed everything for me. Um, I'm just sitting there in my studio, hanging out, going, having meetings with A&R people with my music. And, you know, I would sit in lobbies at publishing houses just saying, I want to see some A&R people. And they'd be like, they're not available. And I'd literally just sit there all day with my coffee and just like, when they're available, I'm here with my music. I'd love to, you know. And one of them felt sorry for me and we met and um, she loved my music. And I think she was in a meeting with someone at EMI about two weeks later or something. And I was also going out gigging my music, performing like instrumental piano things. And I think she'd come down to one of those as well and see me play. Um, so she was in a meeting with EMI and they were looking for a piano player, keyboard player that was a girl for an artist. <laughs> and uh, so she recommended me. I got a call on my phone. Hi, would you go down and meet someone here? I'm like, sure. And I had no idea it was Kylie Minogue at all. Like seriously, no idea. And sat down with these two guys, um, happened to be the vice presidents of whatever, <laughs> but I'm like these two guys. And yeah, they just explained what they needed. And I was just like, yeah, I can do that. I can gig piano, whatever. And then, um, yeah, they when I rock up to rehearsals, in she walks. I'm like, oh, okay. It's her. Okay. So, so yeah, that, that changed everything for me. And up until that point, um, I was just, getting on with it. It was, it was almost like I wasn't really thinking in my mind of when's the break going to happen? When's the thing going to happen? I was just getting on with it every day, you know? And then it just, yeah, it just happened. And that rolled on to us, <laughs> you and I collaborating. <laughs> but yeah, um, that was that was the the turning point for me with that studio space and with me as a 
musician, producer, and performer, yeah. You say it just happened, but actually it didn't because you've kind of, it's, you've sort of glossed over the fact that you weren't, you weren't waiting, you were sitting in receptions of record oh, yeah. labels <laughs> well yeah i was i was doing the grind yeah um yeah for sure i was out like every week gigging my music open mic what well, open keyboard nights <laughs> um yeah and just you know meeting as many people as i could you know i'd be meeting and all people like do you want to be an artist i'm like i don't know just like just listen to my music i don't know just it's me my name is you know etc and <clears throat> eventually someone somewhere Says, oh, you know, I just met this girl a couple of weeks ago and she's really cool. You should meet her. And I just really, I mean, that's happened like four times in my life up to this point. That's like turning, big turning points in my career have come from me just getting on with it anyway, regardless of knowing what the outcome's going to be. Not thinking about the outcome, in fact, just doing it and not thinking, is this going to get me a job or is this going to be good for me? This is like, if I want, if it feels right to do it, just do it what was the first performance with kylie was it a tv it was two hearts and then we did like a quartet and piano version of i believe in you and that was in paris france and um i don't think i met you there though although you were there i don't think i met you oh no i did Oh, funny story. Funny story. Yes. You you came I think you came over to the piano on I believe in you and said, "Oh, oh you're playing it too fast." Do you remember? Uh, or am I playing it too slow? I can't remember. It was too slow or too fast. Came over you like, "Um, could we speed it up a bit?" <laughs> um, and that's how we met. Yeah, and then you walked away. So, hi Steve. Oh, right. Okay. So, before we even actually met properly, <laughs> yeah. you went, "Hi, I'm Steve. Could you uh could you play this a little bit quicker?" Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then, um, yeah, so so that was the first performance with Kylie and it was awesome and she's wonderful and everyone was great and I loved it. Didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, that was my job and I go home and that's great. That was all I was booked for. Um, and then I got booked again. We did all sorts of TV promos and that's when I was spending more time with you. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, we just did a ton of promo and then I thought, well, that was it and well, my job's done. But it wasn't. <laughs> No, it really wasn't. No, and really wasn't. Um, obviously, you know, it was from my point of view to have this sort of incredible piano player, but also the combination of a, of a, a classically trained piano player and a complete synth nerd girl <laughs> was rare. I still think it is rare, actually. Um, and, and, and that had the musicality. Um, to deal with any genre whatsoever, and the uh, the experience, as I said before, you'd done all the everything you'd been doing over the previous, you know, few years. The experience to be able to jump in. So I mean, it was a the, the easiest decision I think I've ever made to say, okay, that's our MD for the next tour. Um, and then I remember you and I went about seeing quite a few people in auditions for the new band. Well, the cool thing was how I found out I got that job, which is like a really cool story, because I think I didn't know that I was even up for that job. I think you were spending a lot of time talking to me about, um, oh, you know, what do you think about bass? And you were just like sneaking in some little cheeky questions. <laughs> um, and we spent a lot of time together, um, got to know each other musically and um, just, uh, you know, hanging out as well. It was great. 
And then we did the Nobel Peace Prize performance, do you remember? And um, it was like Earth, Wind & Fire. <gasps> I was like watching him in soundtrack going, oh my God, that's Earth, Wind & Fire, soundtracking right in front of me. And then um, performance ended, did really good. I was very happy. Carly was amazing, obviously, as always. Um, and then she was like, oh, um, do you want to come back on on my plane? <laughs> I was like, what, what kind of plane is that? Uh, it was a private jet. <laughs> She was like, you're not getting on the commercial flight. You're going to come back with me. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Just, you know, a girl hang on the private plane. And uh, yeah, like, long story short, she she said, um, we'd really love you to MD the tour. And it was on a private jet on the way back to London that I <laughs> found out the best news ever um, and life-changing news. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was pretty exciting. And then, yeah, wheels hit the ground and off we go auditioning 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 forever <laughs> yeah but there was also an opportunity for creativity and there was also an opportunity for you to go back to your roots when it comes to something like how did the, we squeeze that in that was amazing <laughs> on a night like this by the way you're gonna raise up on a lift in the middle of the stage in, the, in an arena with a on a grand piano and perform Piano with orchestra and Kylie is going to come on and join you. I mean, I couldn't even dream that up. That was awesome. <laughs> it was really amazing. And you're going to create the piece. And I'm going to write place. the music and everything. Yeah, I was like, what's just happening right now? <laughs> yeah, that that was really amazing. Um, yeah, I would never have thought that that was going to happen. And then to like wait for the lift to go down, run all the way to the other end of the stage, prop up, and then just, you know fiddle around with synths for the next 20 minutes and then back onto the piano. And it was like running back and forth. It was, it was amazing. It was like all of all of the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. With with one of the best artists in the world. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So <clears throat> that tour was tremendously successful, followed by um, a, a, a quite short but quite epic um, tour of North America. Yeah. And... To be a part of that was amazing. That was her first American tour. Um, and obviously, we, we'd done South America, but the first North American tour. And yeah, Hollywood Bowl, I mean. And we got to do I Should Be So Lucky, just me and her, piano and vocal, encore. And um, still, every time I listen to that, because it's on Spotify, um, I'm like, oh, it was a moment. Um, yeah, uh, I'm very lucky to have been a part of that kind of moment in her career as well as mine because I'd never done Hollywood Bowl either. So, um, yeah, and it was received so well. So, yeah, very lucky. I mean, we travelled the world with that tour. It just never stopped. It was awesome. Yeah. And that obviously led on to the next per the, the next artist, which, which we both worked with, which actually, again, it, it, it was something that started as a show and then and then ended up in a really incredibly successful collaboration which is the 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 sweetheart that is Christoph Willem who we we both have so much affection for oh yes and and obviously that started with with a tour which was the obvious next thing for us to do was to go from one tour to another tour well yeah I mean we seem to have like we're a Batman and Robin for probably about six years <laughs> um in the music world uh yeah so um yeah, I remember you calling me about Christoph. Um, I think Christoph had collaborated 
with Kylie in some way on a song at that there point. There was a duet, yes. There was a duet. Yeah. And so he reached out to you and was like, I want you to do my live show. Um, and that's when he called me and you were like, do you want to do it? Uh, yeah, we went on tour, did an amazing show. That was interesting doing um, auditions in France. <laughs> um, For backing singers? Yeah, that was an interesting week. That was tricky. Because we had the key band, because obviously that's the, you you and I'll always credit you for introducing me to the wonderful Tom Meadows, who has been with me ever since. Um, and Deshaun actually was 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 in, in that band. Yeah. Um, Adrian Eccleston was in that band. It was yep. it was a killer band, but we but we needed local BVs for, for one of two reasons. Actually, principally, there's a lot of stuff in French. Yeah. So yeah, um, we couldn't have English. Yeah, exactly. It was like, well, gotta. But we found some great people. Yes, we did. Um, yeah, and I think Christoph's creativity, both visually and uh, in the way he wanted it to sound, is incredibly inspiring. I know you, like me, take real inspiration from artistic vision. Yeah, Christoph's special. He, I mean, just going back to you talking about his vocal. <laughs> I mean. It's unique. You cannot mistake it with anyone else. It's like the range and technique and expression and passion and just whenever he sings, you know. So straight off the bat, you're, you know, I'm in. I'm like, he's awesome. <laughs> and then obviously working with you. Um, and then just the passion for creating a show that's entertaining. And I don't, if you've ever seen him live on stage, as you know, as I know, just as an entertainer, he's incredible. Like such a, you know, a talent and connection with the audience. Um, yeah, he's just, you know, he's one of those very rare artists that just, hit the mark every time, every gig, you know. It was just very, very lucky to have been a part of putting that tour together. And then obviously we went on and did a lot more after that. But yeah, he's yes, special. I, he is super <laughs> special and we adore him. Um, the next thing was was making an album called Prismaphonic, which actually had an anniversary, I think, last year. It, it did. Year? Did they put it onto vinyl or something crazy? That's it. They did put it onto vinyl. Yeah, um, which is amazing. And... Obviously, there was a. You were obviously um, involved in that. You had songs on it, and you did produce songs on it. But also, mm. um, you had the unenviable task. Uh, well, I say unenviable. I, I don't mean that in a in a nasty way. But it it was quite a lot of work to, because yes. um, really the only person really singing on a Christoph record is Christoph, yep. including all the BVs, absolutely oh, everything. Yeah. Which we got to say is unusual, you know. Um, it is unusual, but I got to say, it's the, like for him, it, just yeah. to show how much of a hard worker he is, and um, and also I'd say that's true for Kylie as well, in yeah. the sense of going in, doing the lead vocals, and going, all right, what else can I do? What can we layer up? What can we do? Let's try the BVs, and um, so yeah, it was a it was a lot, and uh, Christoph likes to sing, so we do a lot of a lot of takes, a lot of doubles, a lot of BV ideas and ad libs, and yeah, which which I love. It's 150% all of the time. <laughs> yeah. And it was six weeks. <laughs> yes, but then once you'd done all of this... Yeah. ...in French, you then had to go and do exactly the same thing in English. Yeah. So it, it's kind of funny because, you know, because I vocally produced, like, I had 
some co-production and some writing, but I vocally produced the entire album. Um, and um, so I was recording every song and um, obviously we worked really well as a vocal producer, artist, vocalist, um, but in French and I'm like, I'm going to leave, you know, you know when you're working with singers and they're singing in your language, you just say, oh, maybe try it with, you know, try to drop your O's or, you know, it was a bit tricky for me to give him direction in French. Yes, I understand French and I can understand, you know, him singing it in French, but I kind of let, you know, it was very, I let him loose on on that, because he, he knows that more. So when we went to record the, <laughs> in English, oh, it was, it was tricky. <laughs> so that was a long process. And uh, I've got to say, he nailed it. I mean, it was really, really good. Like, really good. The 30H was a problem, but that's okay. Um, I mean, yeah, who who does that for a start? I mean, I remember us discussing it and I was like, really, are we got to do the whole thing again? <laughs> You're like, yep, whole thing again in English. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then obviously it has to be identical. So, you know, you don't want it to be too different. So, oh, yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah, it was definitely fun. But his English is impeccable it's but so he also because he is such a perfectionist yeah like he didn't want it to sound like a french person singing english yeah. he wanted it to sound authentic and his and again this is that some of the people we've been talking about are rare in that a lot of people might have gone oh it's fine but his perfectionism w- was off the charts as 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 much as his uh his ability to be able to deliver it but also just intensity to just push through and push through and that would mean a lot of late nights slash early mornings for both of you oh yeah well Christoph's not an early bird so He's, the voice is not there in the morning no it is not <laughs> it's what it warms up during the day it's like I'll meet you for lunch maybe we'll get to studio for 4 p.m I'm like Jesus um so yeah we'd start around three four um but yeah I mean He's he's a singer where, I mean, very much like on a, he was almost on a tour schedule with his vocals. It's like you do gigs at night, you know, and I, I feel like that was his recording schedule also. Mm. So, you know, if we're writing and stuff, we'd be in earlier for writing songs. But, um, but yeah, he, uh, we, we, I mean, wow. One, one session we did, we got home at midday the next day. No joke. Mm. That, I don't think that was on Prismaphonic. I think it was on the second album, the Paradeal. Um, but yeah, we were in the studio all day and then we worked through all the way through till noon. Yeah, I remember walking home at noon. Christoph got an Uber back to his hotel. I was like, wow, <laughs> that was a long day. Yeah. But 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 it's great. And actually, you carried on that collaboration um, after that to become his musical well musical director for all of his tours after that and co-collaborator and writer and producer um countless hits yeah you know, we had awards. some i know crazy well we got double platinums for prismaphonic didn't we so that was awesome and we had a couple of number ones with that which was amazing and then yeah then i went on to do the next record and next tour um, and we had a couple of number ones off that. I, yeah, I mean, I got to work with like Sassy and um, 
Jean-Jacques Goldman got to co-write with the legend that is. Yeah, the three of us did a song, which was crazy cool. Um, so yeah, just really amazing experience. The next record was awesome. Um, and then we did a tour off the back of that. And then uh, then we parted ways after that, as in, you know, I think I was doing other things like Little Mix or something. I can't remember. <laughs> something like that at that point. <laughs> but, yeah. And all this time you've been building up equipment in your studio yeah so every time you know i would come to see you there would be an extra little synth or an extra a little something and yeah there'd be a yeah. new gadget and you know you always invested back in yourself and your studio oh yeah i mean i still do that now i literally bought like a viking violin and a shruti box a couple of months ago and i'm like i don't know when i'm gonna use them well i mean i've already used the shruti box once but yeah, I feel like it's just keeping on topping up that inspiration. And, you know, it's when people, it's de definitely with studios, you just got to let it build, you know. I remember when I first moved into my studio, I was like, I don't have anything. It's like, well, I will. And just go out and buy a load of stuff and just fill it up. It's like, well, I don't know what I want yet. I don't know what I want to make yet. I don't, do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm going to want more synths or more, you know, um, outboard gear or more microphone. I don't know where I'm at yet so yeah it was a regular topping up of yeah the room got smaller and smaller the more you came around because it's like more stuff in there <laughs> um but for sure um I love collecting weird things you never know when you're gonna need them and when you say you were in there every day I mean you apart from when you were touring you really were in there every day I mean you left to sleep which was rare and short and then you'd be back. It Nothing's was... changed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my studio right now at one a.m. talking to you. Um, but but isn't that what it, I think the thing with that that sometimes hard because there's an easy way of sort of people looking at that and just going, oh, you know, that's just a kind of a workaholic attitude. But I've often said, well, no, I, I I've often said that if you or I, I mean, God help the employer, but if you or I, I ever were to do a normal job or a regular job, shall we say, that doesn't involve music, the moment we finish that job, we would want to do music. So it's a very interesting thing where the love, your love and your hobby and the thing you like more than anything else is the thing you do as a job. So why wouldn't you do it all the time? Yeah, people talk about this whole like life balance thing, you know, like, oh, you should get out and da 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 And I, obviously I do. <laughs> um, but you know, it's something that I saw the literally last week I think of someone saying um you know the life balance thing of um you should you should get out you know get out of the studio and go do something else it's like oh go do something else I enjoy less than or should I go do something that I enjoy it just also happens to be my job that I've been doing all day and now I finish the things that I have on my schedule that I gotta deliver or whatever now I'm gonna do music <laughs> but it, it, literally a lot of the time I would have done my work and I'd still just stay in the studio and just mess around and and yeah it's only like if somebody then goes and does their hobby in the evening after work it's like my hobby is my job I mean I'm so lucky but yeah so um yeah that explains why I was in there most of the time <laughs> I mean sometimes I'd meet you for dinner and then go back to the studio after oh yeah <laughs> like 10 p.m <laughs> Um, yeah, nothing's changed. Um, 
I would just, you know what it's like. You'll walk around a supermarket or you're having dinner and then you're walking back and something will happen in your brain and I'll just be like, oh, I'm just going to go back and just figure out like what, what that idea was or what that noise was. I want to want to just explore that thought or that melody and just get that down. And then four hours later, I'm like, oops, I should go home. <laughs> yeah. Would you describe that as having a, sometimes I've heard the expression, a, a noisy brain, but it, it's like, it becomes a point that if you try to ignore it, it will just get louder and louder. So it's better to just go and do the thing that the thought, like follow the thought process through so that you kind of put it to rest. Otherwise it will just keep nagging at you. Yeah. There's like, there's, I think there's two ways to think about that one. I'm worried that I'm going to forget it. It's just going to go. And sometimes I've recorded really cool little things in my phone and they've turned into great things even if it's just a four or five note melody or a lyric even I think the lyric for the Christoph song I had at a bus stop <laughs> and I wrote it in my phone and I'm in a writing session the next day and it becomes the chorus and then obviously that becomes the number one track of the album and now I've got a gold disc and it's all from a bus stop idea so I think now I'm just like no don't let them go because you don't know what they're going to become or what they're going to inspire or even if it's a, a little idea that then gets you to another one. It's not even that that idea is going to be the golden idea. It could be the gateway to the next thing. It's just the thing that starts you off. Whatever it is, don't ignore it, basically. So, yeah, most of the time I'm worried I'm either going to forget it or it's just going to annoy me all day and I'll be like, oh, I just, I'm just going to go to the studio and just play around with it. Yeah, I'll be distracted by it. <laughs> I think that's really good advice. I've often said to everyone that, you know, just the voice note is such an important thing. Don't put it off because you think you're going to remember it, but an hour later you may not. And then it could be the idea. <laughs> How many times have you been sat there and go, oh, it's cool, I remember it. Or you've done that yeah. in like a writing session. You have an idea and you go, it's yeah. cool, I remember it. What, what was your thing? And then you go back and you're like, nope, I've forgotten it, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and that could be a game changer. I mean, it could, yeah, it could be, or it could be the step to a game changer, or, or it could not be, but you don't, you never know. So, yeah, I uh, do try to not let those disappear. I try to grab them while they're there. Absolutely. So, the there's obviously continued success. The studio keeps getting bigger and, you know, better, and... There's individual artist projects you're working on. There's more musical direction, as you said, um, working with bands like Little Mix, which is, uh, which is, I think is a really interesting one because I, I've often said that I feel felt actually because they are not together anymore, but I felt that Little Mix are one of the hardest working bands um, in the world, and especially vocally. Um, and and I know that you were involved in a, a, a live lounge with them, which was uh, complicated to say the least. But um, I think I scared them when I sent them what we we're going to do. <laughs> but uh, they smashed it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, when we put the the concept together, it was like a cappella, four part, boom, just them on their own. So it was like, and I was like, what? Um, uh, we're going to segue that into another song, and then there's going to be you know, gospel choir, and then a little bit of organ, a little bit of guitar, but not much. Uh, but them just starting out from nothing, just 
acapella on Radio 1 live, you know. And then I just come up with an incredibly difficult harmonic arrangement <laughs> and uh, lots of ad-libbing and showing off. And it's because I knew they could do it. And um, yeah, when I first played it, they all kind of looked at me a bit wide-eyed because um, obviously I just tracked it in with my vocals just to map it out for them. Um, and they just rehearsed and rehearsed and you could see they were like, no, I want to get it right, I want to get it right, I want to get it right. And be like 9 a.m. in the studio, like literally... They'd be just turning up in their pajamas. They just wanted to be there and just look, practice it and practice it. They'd just try and squeeze in like two hours before any like promo they had or photo shoots. And we'd just squeeze in as much practice as we could because it was just really important to them to just be as good as they possibly could be. Um, and yeah, the work ethic was amazing. And obviously they're talented as well. So combined, it was a great performance on Radio 1 live. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, live to air. Yeah. Live. Properly live. scary, yeah. I was behind the camera conducting. They were like, you're not leaving the room. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, you're all spitting your chewing gum out because you're all chewing gum. <laughs> they were like so stressed. They they chew gum when they get stressed before a gig. So I was just like, give me the chewing gum. <laughs> so I forget that it's like live. Um, yeah, everyone was really scared um, and nervous because, I mean, there's something about those Radio 1 live lounges, right? They're... I don't know, they're, they're legendary. They're, I mean, some incredible people have done it over the years. So it's it's a special performance. Um, and I think they did an incredible job. I was so proud of them. Yeah, really, really amazing. So I remember um, I just had a memory there of when we were in Paris and um, rehearsing for the Christophe tour, um, staying in a... Uh, what I would describe as a unique hotel experience. I think let's just leave it at that. And um, oh wait, and was it that one? Oh no, yes, it I was that it. one. Uh, <laughs> it was it was oh, not the, the best, worst, but it was not the worst. Um, oh. And I remember any time that I came to your room, you were you know unless there was anything that needed to be done for the show, you were working on soundtrack score. Yeah, you know? and I yeah. and I distinctly remember. I don't know why this has come back to me because we're talking, I suppose, but I remember me, you know, me saying, God, this is what you should be doing. This is, you I know, remember how... that moment. Oh my gosh. I, I walked into yeah. a room and you were there yeah. and the laptop was there. And then and you said, Oh, have a listen to this. And this. There was like horns and strings. And you're like, What is this? And the thing is, obviously, <laughs> I knew you could do that. I mean, obviously, we I know how ridiculously, stupidly talented you are, but I just hadn't kind of heard you you do it because you'd always play me the pop stuff you were doing or yeah. the collaborations you were doing or, yeah. you know, writing for, pitching for artists and everything. Yeah. And then this, this beautiful piece of orchestra music, and I was like, and I remember saying to you, it was like, gosh, that, you know, you're really good at this, but you should be doing that. Yeah, I remember I was like, I will be. I'm just, I'm just get, getting on with it in the background until I'm ready. I know when I'm going to be ready. Yeah. So you started to do more of that and obviously in in the UK coming out of your studio you started to do a lot of music for sync um and pitching for sync which i mean just describe for anyone listening i mean obviously you're in a world now where that's paid off but um it's not for the faint hearted is it sync yeah <laughs> no um 
it was a really good transition because I knew I wasn't ready for film score and documentaries at that point. I still felt I wanted to learn more about who I was going to be and what my sound as an artist, as a composer was going to be. So doing sync, like working to picture for advertising and trailer was a really good kind of um, stepping stone, bit of a hybrid learning experience to work to picture, but you've not got two-hour movie narrative to, you know, short form, basically. Um, but it's very competitive. You kind of have to do a lot for nothing until you might land the job. And yeah, there was, there was, there was a lot, a lot of hours spent pitching for advertising to picture when nothing, nothing happened, nothing came about. Um, and then you'll get the one. I think it was Dove was my first one. And that feeling of like, oh, they're going to use my music. Oh. And um, yeah, and weirdly, it was a solo piano piece. I was like, that's great. <laughs> um, and it was a beautiful advert about mothers. So it was Mother's Day campaign for Dove. Um, and I remember composing all sorts of things for this advert to picture and I loved it. It was like a short form film. I think it might still be online. Um, and it was like three or four minutes long. Um, and yeah, I just remember trying all these things and then it was like 11 o'clock at night and I had to deliver in the morning and I still wasn't happy with anything I had. So I literally just played piano to picture. I just rolled the picture, mute, deleted everything I had and just started playing the piano to the picture and listening to this, to the woman talking and the story and um, yeah, that's what I sent and and that's what got picked. <laughs> um, and I think how I felt, I think that was the moment when I knew how I was going to react and like be inspired as a composer. Like that's how I work now with film and that's, I work I, from script obviously, but then when I get picture, I just, you know, listen and look and feel and then just see what comes out instead of trying to plan what is going to come out. It's, yeah, I think I learned that from from doing sync. I have a theory that, um, which we've spoken about before, but I have a theory that there is a chemical that is released into your brain when you are up against it for a deadline. Oh my goodness, yeah. I love a good deadline. That's what I know. I'm going to do some good work. <laughs> don't give me five weeks to do anything because <laughs> I won't start it until the week before. <laughs> don't tell anyone. No. <laughs> I wonder if you agree. My theory on it is just because you have no time but to go with your gut feeling. Yeah. I. You can definitely spend a lot of time second-guessing. Um, you can spend a lot of time self-criticizing or... Um, you know, kind of doubting your ideas, um, for sure. I think I saw a lot of composer friends of mine say that they like TV because you've got to do X amount of minutes of music by Friday when you go in and record it with the live musicians and you don't have time to compose a cue and then go, oh, maybe I'll see how I feel about it. Just play, you know, change your mind. It's just like, well, that's it. Move on. That's what's happening. That's what's scored for that scene. Um, and that, never means that it's not good because you haven't spent the time on it. I think at this stage, 
you are a great artist, a great composer, and a great musician. And so it's not about how long you spend on something. It is about what you say, that spark. It's like, we know how to access that now. And sometimes under pressure, you're forced to really go there immediately. And then what comes out is, you know, years of you understanding music and understanding how to connect with story and picture and just letting it happen. So it's definitely not, you don't spend time in it, you rush it. It's more, you're kind of just forced to get there quicker and don't procrastinate and don't overthink. Um, and yeah, it's it's definitely something that I'm aware that most of us do <laughs> and need maybe. <laughs> we need a good deadline or else we'll fluff around forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because it's it becomes that thing where I've often said that sort of creative work um, is it, it, sometimes it's it's not finished; it's sort of abandoned. Yeah, because you have no choice but to say, "Well, here it is." Um, I mean, you can play with it afterwards because hopefully, if someone likes it, yeah, then you can then you can tweak it. So, in London, in your studio in Chiswick, um, you're creating this. It's, you're actually going incredibly well, and you're getting lots of you know, uh, sinks and adverts and commissions. And it's actually, you know, you're doing really well, but something inside you, possibly the same thing that made you as a, a, a young girl say, can I go into this course, even though I'm not supposed to be on this course, that thing inside you just said, if I want to do this properly, I need to be where the majority of this stuff happens. So what was, do you remember how, where, why you made a decision to say, I need to move to another country? Yeah. So, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, because I was a very successful, you know, musical director at the time. You know, I was bringing money. Everything was great. <laughs> um, I was, you know, even landing some good trailers back then. And, um, you know, the sync was rolling. Everything, I mean, nothing was bad as far as career or, um, yeah, I just, it was kind of like a bee in my bonnet of like, as you know, from when we were working together and back when I was MDing, I was always composing, you know. And I was pitching for a few films here and there from music supervisors I'd met, um, but not, you know, not getting a lot of traction because I had no credits. Um, and obviously the chicken and egg, you can't get film unless you've got credit, can't get credit unless you get film, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I was kind of fighting with that. And <clears throat> I think the scene in London at the time was, I, I found it very difficult um, to be surrounded by people who were also trying to do what I was doing. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to, just go out to LA for like two weeks during the Grammy week where I knew there was going to be some people I knew there and maybe just meet with some people. Um, and the moment I got out there, you know, I'm meeting, bumping into composers and meeting supervisors at all these events and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I need to be here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but obviously that was a big commitment because I was going to be leaving a lot of um, career comfort, I suppose. Um, but it seems to be something that I 
do. I'm not scared of losing the... <laughs> I needed a shake-up. Uh, I wasn't scared of, of um, leaving that kind of financial and career comfort and just really going for it because I think it's what I've been wanting to do my entire life. And I think at that point, because of the work... I, I'd done up to that point like musical director, which is like live performance with picture and audience and storytelling and then making albums directly with artists and working on projects like long-term projects and writing, you know, a, like conceptual albums as well. Like Christos was a conceptual album, like in the sense of he had a storyline he wanted to follow with Prismaphonic and then he had a storyline, you know. So all these things, and then just touring with crazy punk bands and indie bands, all these things had kind of armed me and got me more prepared and more excited and inspired as to what I could bring to a film or a TV show or a video game. And I felt like, okay, I feel like I'm ready. Like I'm, I'm a better producer now. I'm a better musician now. I got way, way more to offer because I've learned so much and absorbed so much, you know, so many different styles of music and, and so much experience like traveling the world and et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like that I was... I was like, it's now or never. Like, I've just got to do it now. And it was really scary, like, packing up my studio, of which so many amazing things had happened in that room. It was very sad. Um, but, yeah, I then did one more trip back, had some meetings. I was like, yep, yeah, I've got to move here. I just have to go do it. Yeah. It's not easy, is it? No. Oh, it's so stressful. Once well, you've made the decision to go. Yeah. Then it's like the eight months of, all right, well, Bye bye London and all my friends. <laughs> um, but actually, even the <clears throat> the paperwork involved. Oh, so yeah, visa was tricky. You know, you have to spend it. I had to get collect a lot of money. Um, the cost of shipping everything, putting it in containers and shipping it across. Because I was shutting down, like as in I was getting rid of my apartment, getting rid of my studio. You know, some people just do like six months and go back and forth. This was like a moving. So there was a lot to organize of shipping my entire studio equipment over and my home and sorting out a visa and paying for that. So costs, stress, <laughs> everything. It was it was pretty intense. And then just arriving in a city where I didn't know anybody. <laughs> so that was also a bit scary. Um, but luckily within a few weeks, you know, you get to meet people. But I don't know. I just had to be done. I knew I had to do it. It's just just had to get on with it. Just do it. No matter what it costs, there's a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, there is. And you, obviously, you find a, a space, a kind of work-life space, so you can start building up your studio once the bits and pieces yep. arrive. Um, yeah. And then you've got to start, not necessarily all over again, because obviously you have a reputation now and there's certain houses and stuff that you've been working with before. But you've got to do the same thing that you did so many years ago when you were knocking on doors at record companies to try and get work there, you then have to reintroduce yourself as, 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 as someone not from there um, when the place that you've moved to is absolutely the best place to be for someone like you, but is also absolutely full of people wanting to do what you're doing. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the amount of people I met before I came out here and they're like, oof. <laughs> it was just that, okay, you know, just give it give it a couple of years, see how you do, you know. I was like, oh no. Um, yeah, 
it's a town full of everyone coming over to make their dreams come true, you know, um, of course. But yeah, that 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 didn't bother me so much. I think what what was really scary for me was um I think reaching out to people, just getting people's time. I was like, just if they meet me or if just if they hear my music, um, that's all, that's all I really was after when I, I didn't have, basically I didn't come out with any expectations of, oh, I'm going to, this is going to happen by this time and this is going to happen by this time. I was just like, it happens when it happens. The most important thing for me was to build um, relationships. I just, that was, that was my focus when I got here. And I literally spent four months just meeting people who I knew couldn't even hire me because I had no credit. You know, I'm meeting like the head of CBS and Lionsgate film. And they're just like, yeah, we can't really hire composers that haven't done anything yet. That's, you know, you know like a movie or something that they will have heard of. Um, so I'm out here like not represented by an agent with no credits. And yeah, it was, it was really tough. But the incredible thing was these people actually met with me, which which I have to say I didn't expect. <laughs> I mean, you know, this music supervisor at Lionsgate, yeah, sure, come down for a coffee. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, to everyone out there, just email, you never know. Because <laughs> it, it worked, it worked for me in a lot of in a lot of ways, yeah. And also I suppose there it's getting better, but at the same point, you know there wasn't um then and i say there are a few more now but actually being a female composer is sets a slightly different precedent because there's not nearly enough in the industry there isn't enough i mean there's incredible people now like you know natalie hall and you know sarah shacknow's done video game and hilda from the joker and there are definitely women coming through that are changing the game and hopefully me also. <laughs> um, and yeah, but we're still like only something like 8%. I mean, it's tiny. <laughs> if you think about the entire industry, it's minuscule. Um, but it's growing. Uh, but yes, it's it's hard. Um, but luckily, I, I think I came over in a time when that was being embraced of we need to start looking, you know, especially the agency I ended up joining after seeing many agents um I think they only had like one or two women on their books and maybe 35 men you know so they were really excited to sign a another female composer that they really liked the work of and we get on really well and so yeah I mean it's definitely hard yeah and what was the because I remember speaking to you when you first went over there and, you know, it was, you were doing everything right, but I mean, it takes time. Oh, yeah. Um, do you remember the first thing, kind of break that oh, happened yeah. where all of a sudden you were like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, I met with, um, I met with a producer from a film studio um, for lunch kind of every, maybe once every two months, I'd always just check in, really nice guy. Obviously, you know, he's not going to hire me for anything until I'm building up my credits, but I'm always staying in touch. We'd meet at Soho House for lunch um, in Hollywood. Um, I think that it, was, it was after a lunch we'd had. Um, he was in a meeting with a director who was making a film 
And the director was like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a composer for my film, but I want to get someone new, someone fresh. And that's when he said, well, actually, I just had lunch with a girl called Sarah. You, you guys should meet. Um, so I met with the director who was Guy Mosh. We went for lunch. We got on well. And then, yeah, that ended up being my first credit, which was a sci-fi feature film on Amazon Prime, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. <laughs> I was like, well, what? Um, so, yeah, that was the first, I think that was within kind of eight months of me arriving, maybe sooner than that, maybe six months after I arrived. So I was shocked because I thought, you know, everyone says it's going to take you about four years till you get your first film. I'm like, great, I'm down, let's do this. And then it happened a lot quicker. So again, luck, being in the right place, having meeting the right people, um, and a ton of persistence, I think, as well. <laughs> Just annoying people for lunch. Um, and that was amazing. And that, that kind of changed everything. The moment I had that credit, um, I got to meet with a lot more people and had a score to show in a reel. I had something legitimate that was on Amazon and it was by a, you know, a film director who's worked with, you know, Woody Halson and, um, you know, Demi Moore. It was, it was in his last film and you're just like, okay, well, that's that's going to help a lot. Um, and I think that really, that really was the, fir- the turning point for me, um, which was amazing. And stylistically, obviously, as a composer, you adapt to whatever the movie is, mm. but it seems that, no composer I suppose people talk about a sound and obviously certain again every composer adapts themselves but you have been able to in the work that you've done um, when it's appropriate merge your two great loves of orchestral and electronic Um, and it's my favourite thing which (laughs) yes absolutely but also you know you, you you cite certain um inspirations um including johan johansson and various people that that have 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 similarly kind of done similar things but there's a where it's appropriate the soundscape Mm. nature of what you do Mm. um is equally as important as the musicality compositional theme as well yeah Um, saying that i know you're an absolute lover of theme yeah, melody, melody yeah. <laughs> John John Williams and yeah. and you have a canny knack of introducing all of those into what you do so it's a kind of a lovely big melting pot of all of your inspirations but never at the detriment of what's on the screen so you're always you're not trying to get your music across you're just using all of your influences to be able to turn it into what sounds like the correct accompaniment to the picture yeah I mean well thank you and uh, yeah I I mean definitely composers like Johan Johansson just from the arrival to Sicario even Mandy I don't know if people have checked out that score but it's amazing and it's like heavy rock guitar you know it's he's a, he's another great um, example of um, just using the language all of, all of the language, the total language of music and just bringing in what you need for whatever story you're telling through sound, you know, or whatever emotion you're trying to 
um, support in a storyline. Um, and I think, you know, even people like Max Richter, who's incredible at doing that, another pianist, classical musician. Um, I mean, everyone's going crazy for the Bill and Frank theme right now, which is obviously from one of his albums, The Blue Notebook. So I just love that piece of music. Just made me cry so much. Um, yeah, and I'm a big fan. Um, and then, you know, you've got like Danny Bensey and Trent Reznor who just make ridiculously cool sounds, like soundscapey sounds, sound beds, you know. Um, and yeah, those those kind of composers um, are really inspiring. And um, what I kind of, but I kind of like want to put both, want to put all of all of those into the pot, you know, because I'm there creating a bed of atmosphere for you know, uh, like the video game is in a world, you know, and I'm creating this atmosphere. Then I'm like, but it has to have you know, it has to have some, like, some kind of melody or something going on here. I feel like, you know, it has to relate to this. And um, it's such a great challenge. And and it's, and I just really enjoy it all at the same time. Um, to be able to bring those things together. And, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. Be it on synth or string or piano or, what it, you know, whatever. Or even, like, my weird instruments at the back of the room. <laughs> um doesn't matter where it's coming from. It's just, I'll, yeah, I'll just go with the flow of whatever it needs. What's the weirdest instrument you've got in the back of your room? I mean, I'm going to say, I'm just like looking at the back. It's probably not weird. It's just, it's just really cool that I have a Shruti box. I'm so glad I have one. <laughs> it's just, it's so loud. When I, when it first arrived, I was so excited, had it shipped over actually got a Daduk as well, which I, it took me about a week to actually get a noise out of the thing. I don't know if you... <laughs> um, I love the sound of those for uh, anyone listening, if they've ever heard. Um, well, I suppose the best example is Peter Gabriel's um, Last Temptation of Christ yeah. soundtrack. <laughs> That's yeah. very yeah. Daduk yeah. heavy. Well, Daduk is is just one of those instruments. And also I had, had it engraved with my name on as well. This guy actually made it for me in... Um, he was from Albania... I think so. I shipped. Um, and I was like, can you just put my name on it? It's like, <laughs> be really cool. And yeah, it took me about a week to uh, get a sound out of it. And uh, it's double readed, uh, just absolute nightmare. Um, and now I can get a noise out of it, a pretty good one. But again, you know, it's good with the reverb. <laughs> Needs the reverb. A good eight-second reverb, and it sounds beautiful. Yeah, it's good. Um, and then, yeah, the the those are the two major things that that stand out as as newbies in my studio at the moment. Um, just because so random, never would have thought I would have one. And I'm going to say the Valhalla as well, the the Viking violin, but I'm going to still work on that one. Yeah, just waiting for the score to come along that I can use that violin. <laughs> So the violin is, you do play a lot yourself, but also um, a lot of it is, I mean, explain a little bit to people about the kind of process because there's a lot of stuff that you will do um, in in presenting things to people where you'll basically have to mock the whole thing up yourself. And eventually, sometimes as you've done um, quite a lot, it will then, you might have mocked up 
some strings with you playing and a few samples and stuff, and then it turns into the real thing. And but actually, you have to get the thing sounding pretty close and amazing before you actually get a chance to do it for real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with most of the, I say, with all of the scores I've done, video game, TV, movie, yeah, the mock-ups have got to sound convincing because you've got to convince the producers and the directors, um, you know, this is my idea. And then, you know, you're, it's almost like you're saying, you know, we're going to go and do it properly next week. But <laughs> but it's almost like some some will be, you know, if you have a long long relationship with a director and a producer, I'm sure down the line, they're like, we know it's going to be, it's go- we know eventually where it's going. So the mock-ups are great. But I felt, especially at my stage, I felt like those, those mock-ups, those like version ones you're sending for approval, um, yeah, they just had to sound like almost like the dumb thing. You know, a lot of the time I'm getting out the violin and cello and just layering up the samples just with me playing on it just because I was I was just like, I have to, have to get them to a stage where they sound great, you know, especially if there's like solo melodies in there or whatever. But yeah, a lot of, you spend a lot of time on sort of mock mocking up the cues prepping them for them and then you just undo all of that and then just do it <laughs> do it for real and it, it does at the time you're like oh I know we're not even going to use any of this anyway but um but yeah uh, we're lucky we have incredible sample packs out there now because to be honest a lot of it sounds great <laughs> it sounds really good but also your um all of the skills that you've honed over the years in production and mixing mm. Um, because it is, it's not, you know, at that stage, it is literally all coming from you, as in the playing, the doing, the mixing, the production, you know, you're sending it, it's all you, you're not sending it off to... I don't have 50 assistants and five programmers and three score, you know, orchestrators or anything. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's me. Um, yeah, it's it's all of all of the work all all of the time <laughs> right right up to the bit where you then hand it off to oh, now we can go record it and give it to 30 incredible musicians who are going to breathe the life into the uh, the the score which is one of my favorite moments it's still a a cool feeling isn't it no oh, it's so amazing and we 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 did something uh, when we did the track for Christoph and <laughs> yeah the the famous I'm just going to write an orchestral song for a pop artist in France and see how if the record label likes it and weirdly they did which was very grateful for and we got to go record a um was it Angel Angel yeah, yeah. oh yeah and i mean I remember Christoph going, oh, but the, you know, it sounds great. You know, the mock-ups. I'm like, thank you, Spitfire Audio. <laughs> um, uh, but then, yeah, when we went in and we had the orchestra and the brass and the, and then I was on the grand piano and just like, oh, yeah, this is, this is why we love doing what we do. You mentioned Spitfire there. I think it would be remiss of me to not ask you if you have, you know, any specific things particularly that you rely heavily on when it comes to instruments and virtual instruments? I mean, I'm going to go on the past week. I've actually been using um, their Sarconi Quartet and their harp a lot because I'm working on a documentary and those things are just sounding amazing. 
The um, Spitfire Harp. Yeah, the Spitfire Harp. The one, the yes, one, no, the one I think I put you me. on it as well. It's <laughs> yeah. so like, this Absolutely. to you, we're like, which, which harp should I get, Sarah? I'm like, well, if you can't find a harpist, this is where you need to go. Um, yep, I used it. They're, ama- they're amazing sample packs. It's Skylar Kanga. It doesn't get better <laughs> exactly. than her. And obviously I've got Tina Cellist from Zimmer Tour. I can never pronounce her surname. Cello pack, which is unbelievable. Um, that's not Spitfire, but um, I think that's Cine Samples. But Spitfire is, um, they put out, a. I think it was like a composer toolkit thing. I don't know if you've ever listened to them before, but so, yes, yeah, yeah. Some really cool little Atmosy pad things in there that were quite inspiring that I've been playing around with. So... Um, it's probably a ton of things I love with Spitfire, but that's just from the past week or so that I've been leaning into. But I think I literally own everything that they have, so <laughs> I love all of their stuff. Yeah, it is really well done. So kind of bringing us up to kind of now, really, I mean, the video game world is quite a hard one to crack and to get in the door. Um yeah. And again, not for the faint-hearted, especially for the physical amount of material that needs to be created, including many different versions of many different pieces um, for various things. So when you did crack that and became the first female composer for Far Cry for Ubisoft, that must have been a little kind of yay moment. Oh, more than a little yay. <laughs> I think I cried a little bit. Um, yeah, it's it's been a massive dream of mine to score for video games. I've been playing them for years. As you know, I had a PlayStation in my studio in London. Did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you had a PlayStation uh, and and a plethora of small, tiny, furry creatures. I did, yeah. They were my they were my backup. Yeah. It was like an audience. <laughs> Actually. They were the audience for video games, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they're they're here in my studio right now. Of course, they're here. Them, yeah. yeah, there's no yeah. way. There's no way there's they're no not way they're here. Right, yeah, they're not here. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the video game thing has been a dream of mine for a long time. Um, and you know, I've done a couple of games. Uh, I've done a couple of movies and um, some shorts. Um, at this point. I'd found an agent who I loved, um, Alex at F- Alexander Vangelis at First Artists. Um, and I'm always nagging away at him, like, come on, video games, video games. And, you know, he's putting me up for all these big TV shows, HBO, and, you know, he's really like pushing for me. And, you know, I'm pitching, not quite landing him up against some big names. And this whole thing of video games, again, it's chicken and egg. If you haven't done one, I don't get one if you haven't. Yeah. Etc. <laughs> so, so I'm up against this, and um, you know, I get emails. Oh, there's a big show on HBO. We're going to throw you in the hat for it. Can you put a reel together? Blah blah blah. So, there's a big video game coming out. We're going to put you in the hat for it. Can you put a reel together? So I just put a reel together and forget about it. Um, and then I get a call the next week. It's like, oh, they're really interested in your reel. They're interested in getting on a call and you pitching. So it's like next stage, um, and. Yeah, I get on a call with um, Justin, who is the music supervisor for this game. Um, uh, we have a lovely chat, and he's like, come up with a theme and a sound for this new world that we've created for this game. I was like, can't think of anything more exciting to do. This is great. See you next week. And uh, that was me for a week, just in my back cave, just creating noises. Um, and yeah, I just came up with a motif and a sound and 
honestly, didn't overthink it because in the back of my mind, I'm like, again, it's going to be a get my name in the room, get people talking about me. I'm probably not going to get it. It's a huge video game. They've got people like Cliff Martinez and, you know, all the, you know, all these big names who are going to get it. So I think the pressure was off in my mind. I was just like, I'm just going to enjoy myself, create a sound for this world they've created and a theme. They sent me some gameplay, you know, highly NDA'd and all this stuff. Um, and then um, my agent's like, oh, you know, a couple of weeks, I'm sure they'll get back to us. And um, like four days later, I got a call from my agent. She's like screaming down the phone, Haley, who's my day-to-day, Haley Flame. She's like screaming down the phone at me going, oh my God, you got the job, you got the job. <laughs> and I mean, amazing that my agents got as emotional as I did. I love those guys so much. Um, but yeah, I I was so overwhelmed. Um, I also found out it was a blind audition as well, as in, um, I think there was four of us that pitched our ideas for the game and then our names were taken off and it was all like numbers and whatever. So um, that was amazing. That was kind of like a, a double up of amazing. It's like, oh, wow, I really got it on my music. This is great. Um, and I think that probably helped because I'm like new to the video world, um, the video game world. Uh, so yeah, um, that was a massive moment for me and just the best four months ever. I mean, it was it was maybe a little bit over four months, but it was an, an intense four months, but some of the best composing fun I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously the live recording and yeah, which I did in the UK, which was amazing. And you helped me find some musicians for that actually, I remember. Um, but yeah. It feels like uh, there's lots of these, but I think something like that as a moment feels like a real validation of, you know, a, a life's work, but specifically since you've moved sort of three, three and a half years mm. um, to get to this point mm. now and achieve something again, another thing, another achievement. You've ticked lots of achievements off. You've still got loads of achievements to go, of course, oh, you're never the done. the list is long, yeah. I don't, yeah, <laughs> there's no way you're ever done. But, um, but yeah, it is, You do you feel that, that it, it kind of, it's, it was, it's kind of was worth it. it I, I get the impression that if you'd have stayed in the studio in Chiswick, you'd have still done well. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know and nothing nothing to do with your talent, but I just still think your decision to invest in yourself again and uproot your entire world and life to a place where you knew, knew nobody and start again has paid off. Yeah, in so many ways. Like the second week I arrived, I'm in a Starbucks with David Buckley. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> He's like someone who I just was listening to his scores and then I just face Facebook message him and say, hey, I love your music. We know this person. Uh, you live in Santa Monica. I live. Would you consider meeting for coffee? And I think he went to my website, listened to my music, and I was just like, sure, let's meet up. You know, and he becomes my friend, introduces me to an agent. Um, you know, so... I think those things wouldn't have, yeah those things wouldn't have happened if if I had, you know it was always something that I you know I kind of I I don't, I don't even think about oh it would have been awful if I'd stayed in London or maybe I would be scoring for films and video games in London just would have been a different version but um 
I definitely the energy of going to a new place, it kind of, I got very comfortable in London. I knew a lot of people, people knew me, you know, there's this whole thing and I was really trying to change it up, push forward and it was hard for some people to see past that and it was also hard for me to get into a new circle and it's kind of a very tricky environment in London. And so me just pushing myself up to the next step of I I, I want to, you know, reach further, see what else is out there. There's, you know, I think it had to, it had to involve like a big change, like a new, new environment and new energy, I think. And I mean, you know what it's like when you spend too long in doing one thing, you know, musically or whatever, you know, you, you got to like shake it up a bit. And I feel like the move is what helped shake it up. And, you know, I wouldn't have met people like David Buckley and, you know, just uh, everyone I've met out here, some incredibly talented and awesome composer friends and musicians and directors and producers who I might not necessarily have met if I'd stayed put and just come back and forth a week here and there, you know. It had to be a commitment. Yeah. And I think that they see that. They're like, oh, wow, you committed. Okay, you're not messing around. There's definitely that too, you know. And the interesting thing is, is that when all this is going on and when it's really busy and you're really up against it or you're waiting to find out if you're doing something, the thing that you always return to if you need to find a space or find a place to calm yourself in any way is to just sit there and play the piano. Oh, I literally, I do before I go to bed most nights, actually. <laughs> People think I'm crazy. So, you know, I spend like 14 hours in the studio and then I'm just like, all right, I need to wind down. I'm just going to go play the piano for an hour. Um, yeah, it's my favorite thing. Um, classical, jazz, Latin, pop, whatever it is that comes out. A lot of the time it's classical at the moment, but yeah, it's, it's my favorite thing. Well, sometimes I'll just try and, you know, work out an arrangement of whatever I've been composing that day on piano and see if I can do it or just try and enjoy it in a different light um, by doing it on piano. Um, but yeah, it's still still my, my place. I've actually been playing a gorgeous concert grand piano, a Yamaha in my friend's studio. Um, been playing that um, sometimes um, the weekends and just to get behind a grand piano in a, you know, it's a big uh, studio recording room, you know, we fit an orchestra in there, it's a big space. Um, that's been amazing. I, I, I didn't realise how much I'd missed that, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, definitely always heading back to the piano every time. But I think also it's a safe, safe place and also it's, it's always been there for you. Yeah, yeah. It's a love affair from the beginning to the end. It's a love yeah. affair, yeah. It's yeah. never let you down. It's never nope. kind of gone anywhere. It's been from a, effectively a three-year-old child. Yeah. yeah. You've had this thing in your life. You know, if it was a person, it would be a person. I mean, in, a way, in many ways, it kind of is a person, but you've had this one thing that you can rely on that still fascinates you that still brings you the same amount of joy. So much. It's, it's, I mean, even from, you know, had a terrible day at school and I'm eight years old, I'd go home and throw my bag on the floor and I'll just sit at the piano. 
and just play the piano because that's where it all goes. That's where it goes into. And then the piano feeds back to me, oh, other things. And yeah, so it's just this sort of, kind of therapist from an early age <laughs> in the form of music. But um, yeah, to when I'm a teenager and, you know, you're getting bullied at school or whatever, and I just go disappear in a room with a piano for four hours and I just come out feeling so much better, like, Ugh, it doesn't really matter in the end because I can do that and I can feel that and that was awesome. And still do that now, like have a tough day or things aren't quite happening composing. Um, I'll go sit at the piano and, yeah, it's definitely, definitely therapy as well as, um, a, yeah, a kind of calming calming end to my day you know just a bit of Bach before you go to bed it's not bad <laughs> bit of Rachmaninoff piano concerto before you go sleep <laughs> yeah that sounds that sounds wonderful most people would listen to it wouldn't be able to play it you can do both it's great for my housemate he's just like yeah this is awesome you just play me to sleep <laughs> uh yeah that's a cool one um just for the end just a couple of things mm. um where do you think your drive comes from <sighs> wow. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> survival. Uh, yeah, probably survival. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I was all over the place as a kid, moving around a lot. Um, so I think, I think a lot of it, I was very self-reliant, self... You know, if I got to get something done, if something needs sorting, something... Um, if I want to learn something or if I want to go something, you know, I have to just figure it out myself. Um, you know, when you don't have the necessarily the safety net or the the kind of backup of that kind of security as a kid, I think you start to find ways to um, kind of have like pep talks with yourself. <laughs> like... Um, all right, well, what do I need to do then to make this happen? And uh, okay, I know, I know I can, you know, it's almost like I, I know I can do this because I have to, I have to, to, and then when I got, get older, it's like now I have the kind of tools where I can access that feeling and it's worked up to this point. So yeah, I think weirdly it's probably come from not a lot of security when I was younger to cre having to create that for myself. Um, for sure, yeah. Survival was a really good answer. Yeah. Um, and what pearls of wisdom could you impart to a young composer who would love to be doing the kind of things you're doing right now? It's always really hard, that question, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, everyone says, oh, what would you tell your younger self or whatever? <laughs> Just like, I don't know. <laughs> but more so actually in this world, like yeah. now, as in if someone, because obviously technology has changed, there's, you know, so much more going on. It's just like what you, you're working in it. You're sort of effectively living the dream, which has taken a long time and a lot of work and a lot of talent to get there. But um, is there anything that you've kind of picked up that might help someone who's, as ta as talented as, as as you and is just really trying to push through. Yeah, I'm gonna say like somebody said to me before I moved over. She 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 came up to me and there was a woman who worked for BMI. Um, she comes up to me. She says, "Sarah, don't go to LA and then chase everyone's career path um, and change your music." 
And at the time, I didn't quite understand. I was like, because I'm not going to change my music. And then when I came out here, I understood what she meant, which was, um, and I did find myself slipping into that thought pattern sometimes of like, oh, you know, it'd be great to, you know, do what Trent Reznor's doing. Like he's getting those kind of sounds and he's working on those kind of projects. And then it'd be great to kind of follow down the route of, you know, um, Rob Simonson is doing really kind of edgy indie movies um, using these. And then I was just like, I kind of understood what she meant because you can, you want to work. You're coming out here and you want to work. And so you look at what's working and you think that's, oh, that's what I should be doing. You know, when people said, when I come out here, well, you need to go and assist a composer or you need to go do this. So I think my one thing is, um, the one thing that I would say that I've learned that I still have to apply now because you can get caught up in it is um, like lo- looking at what everyone's doing and loving what everyone's doing is great, but don't don't ever feel like that, that that's the roadmap. Um, you just got to make your own map. <laughs> Even though someone will say, you know, you should really assist for a composer for X amount of years, or you need to do 50 short films, pay your dues, or you should really learn how to produce, um, you know, do like musical theory with strings as well as electronics. You should, you know, does it, does it just, just, doesn't matter. <laughs> I think there's room for everyone. And I think there's especially room for people who are doing something that's not what everyone else is doing. In fact, there's more room for that, if you know what I mean. Um, so that's definitely something I would say that I have to keep reminding myself of as well, because um, it's tough. You know, you want to work, you want to be heard, you want you want to get jobs on TV series and then you listen to what everyone's doing and you think, oh, that's what I should be doing and then I'll get hired. And it's like, funnily enough, um, when I speak to most composers I know that are working on those shows, they haven't done that at all. <laughs> um, so make the weird noises you want to make. Uh, and, and the other thing I would say is just go make it. Don't wait for the TV show. Go make the noises, put it out on Spotify and then just go meet people with your music. That Do it backwards. Do it what you think is backwards, but it's not. It's just just do it. That's my that's my phrase for the day. Just do it. Just do it. I, do you know what I love that though? I I have often say to people when they ask me about these things, I just say no one is going to notice anything you do if you just keep it on your computer. You know, no one's yeah. going to come and ask him for something. It's like we're living in a world where you work with sync all the time. You know, people that that run sync all the time. Yeah. It's so rare that they will ever open an email and find a piece of music and accept it unless they've asked for it. What they will do is they'll spend their days trawling Spotify yeah. to find pieces of unique yeah. music. So, yeah. It, yeah, music supervisors. So if you have something that you like and you're proud of, put it out. Yeah. It's the easiest thing to do. When you, when I was growing up, even when you were growing up, it, the idea of just being able to release something without any kind of label or support whatsoever yeah, it's crazy. was, was quite this. hard. Yeah. And now you can just put yeah. something up. Um, so, and I love also what you said about, um, you know, that, that thing of don't be scared, learn things. You know, if you're a great musician, but you're not particularly great with technology or logical pro tools, you know, but teach yourself. It. Yeah, just, just do it. Yeah, and also there's like no rule. Like don't don't feel like you have to go to classes or whatever. You know, you've got to speak to some of the best musicians and producers in the world. They didn't know anything. Majority of them didn't know anything. I didn't have special teaching. Cl- I'm not saying, you know, I know everything. No one really. I mean, I feel like most of us 
there's we learn something new every day in the studio. I feel I'm going to do that till forever. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, just figure it out. I don't know. Like half the time, I'm working with some of my outboard gear, and I'm like, I I know what I'm doing, but then I'll just do something that maybe I'm not supposed to, you know. And then so I'm like, oh, that's actually quite cool. I'm just going to do that anyway. And I mean, yeah, just figure it out. Some of the greatest musicians in the world, they sound different because they did it different. So well, that's probably not a bad thing. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely just lean into, you know, if you think it sounds good and you like what you're making, just just make it and keep making it and just get enough people to hear it. Yeah. That is excellent advice. Um Amazing. I'm not going to ask you about anything you're doing because everything is always a secret until it happens and comes <laughs> out. But I know you've got a really yeah. exciting year ahead. I do, yeah. Um, awesome. And there will be, you will hear um, Sarah's music a lot and you can find it uh, as lots of these soundtracks, including the game, have come out. Yeah, the Far Cry so 6 video you game. You are a streaming out there. artist. Yeah. I know. Soundtracks. Yeah, it's all out um, there. It's, it's all there. Um, you can find her. Uh, at Sarah DeCourcy on any of the various social media platforms. Um, thanks for spending some this time. Has been so much fun. Very late night. My it's my now early morning. <laughs> nothing's nothing's really changed. Yes, but you you thrive at this time. I do. I'm a, definitely a night owl. You're a night owl, and I'm a morning person. So it works perfect. <laughs> Well, it, it does. I mean, unfortunately, what it means is that we don't get to have coffee every week. Um, I know. In our cafe in Chiswick, and we don't physically see each other, but we do do this a lot. We do this instead, um, yeah. I don't have coffee at 2 a.m. I have tea. You have coffee at 8 a.m. But no, this has been great, and um, I'm really enjoying your podcast as well. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, some of my faves up there, Rooney and James, and yeah, so... Yeah, oh, congratulations you. to you because you've interviewed some really awesome people and, um, yeah, big fan of your podcast. Thank you. Well, you know I'm extraordinarily proud of you. Oh, and, thank you, um, Good luck with everything this year. Yeah, thank you so much. And you with your million and one tours and ex exciting things that you're doing, like you're forever, forever busy and with your podcast. <laughs> Look at us Capricorns. Look at us go. I know. Oh, listen, <laughs> Capricorn power. Um, who knows? I might pop up. I might be at your front door sometime later this year. Let's Coming see. over to Hollywood. It's where dreams are made. <sighs> <All right. laughs> I know, exactly. Well, you're living it. Okay, yeah. have an amazing day and a year, and I'll see you soon. Yes, you too. Thank you so much, Steve. Bye.